Support for WAER Original Podcasts comes from California Closets of Syracuse, located in DeWitt. California Closets can help you get your entire home organized with custom-designed storage solutions for the home office, kitchen pantry, closets, and more. Online at californiaclosets.com. That's the funny thing about this. When I originally came across British Ghost Stories for Christmas uh, and started talking you know, with uh, friends from the UK, other researchers looking at UK horror, um, it wasn't really something that people talked about outside of the UK, but it was very well known within the UK. Christmas has become a truly global holiday. From Shanghai to Wellington and from Istanbul to Buenos Aires, many people, whether Christian or not, will mark the late December holiday. Some of the traditions and images around the world have become almost universal. The Christmas tree appears almost everywhere. Some version of Santa Claus always seems to pop up. But there are those Christmas traditions that are more specific to their country of origin. In the Philippines, for example, the holiday is celebrated with colorful lanterns. In Sweden, there is a Christmas goat. And in Great Britain, there's a long tradition of Christmas ghost stories. Now, spooky stories may seem a bit strange for the Yuletide season, but recall one of the most famous Christmas stories in the English language involved three ghosts. The ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and that fearsome ghost of Christmas future. I'm Kendall Phillips, and on this episode of Pop Life, we continue our exploration of Christmas in the movies with a little trip across the pond to consider the British tradition of ghost stories for the holiday. Guiding us through this spooky excursion is Dr. Lindsay Decker. Lindsay is a scholar of both British cinema and horror and author of Transnationalism and Genre Hybridity in New British Horror Cinema from the University of Wales Press. Lindsay, welcome to Pop Life. Hi, Kendall. Thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoy the show, so (laughs) happy to be invited. You may be the first time we've had a guest who actually knows what the show is, so I'm thrilled. I'm doubly (laughs) thrilled to have you, and always good to see you, Uh, good to talk with you again. So, Lindsay, i got to say, you know, as an American, I suspect a lot of our American listeners are, are hearing this saying, ghost story, Christmas. What is with that? So how does that get started in the U.K.? Yeah. Um, so as far as we can tell uh, in terms of records, we have records of this starting really in the Victorian era. The Victorians sort of started taking Christmas a little bit more seriously than it had been taken in the past, probably in part because there's the rise of the middle class during that time, uh, but also because of Queen Victoria herself. Mm. Uh, she and her German husband, Prince Albert, apparently really loved Christmas and would go out with like lavish decorations um, and, you know, lavish meals and and things like that. And the Victorians really made Christmas about family. Hmm. And you might think, well, if it's about family, why are we telling ghost stories? (laughs) Uh, Imagine yourself in a probably drafty British drawing room. Uh, Your grandma is, you know, snoozing in a chair in the corner under a blanket with a cap on. You have a variety of people around you to entertain. You have adults. You have children of various ages. What are you going to do? You're probably going to tell some stories. How do you keep everybody entertained? Maybe by telling some Christmas stories uh, that have some little ghosts in them uh, just to, you know, keep everybody entertained all throughout. Uh, And maybe while you're doing it, you want to tell a bit of a morality tale at the same time, teach those kids a lesson. Mm. Uh, So that's where we think it really gets started. Although I 
would guess that probably it was an oral tradition much longer than that, that mm. just we don't have record of it until the Victorians, because that's when print really picks up and uh, literacy becomes really big in Britain. Sure. And the Gothic novel starts to emerge about that time. So I'm wondering if that's part of, you know, that that's also what people are reading in, in you know, the libraries or in the bookstores. They're reading these kind of Gothic stories like Castle of Tronto and the Monk. And what better way to spend the uh, Christmas evening than to uh, bring those into the home? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that um, the the sort of long history of Britain's obsession with the supernatural and ghosts probably also played a big role. Uh, even if you think back to you know, older British folklore, medieval British stories, like the King Arthur stories, mm. even like Shakespeare uh, in the Renaissance time, there's just a lot of ghosts in their literature, whether it's supposed to be scary or not. Right. Now, I wonder, you know, and again, this is probably speculating beyond where we where, certainly where I should be speculating, but I'm wondering about, you know, the, the degree to which Christmas itself, like so many of the traditions are kind of borrowed polyglot from other cultures and particularly sort of, you know, Welsh and Scottish and, and other co- European cultures. I'm wondering if that is also because, you know, so much of that Victorian era British interest in ghosts located the ghosts outside, right? They were Welsh or Irish or Scottish or et cetera, et cetera. I wonder if that's part of it as well as the kind of recognition of of Christmas as a kind of hybrid holiday of kind of pulling together all kinds of disparate cultural traditions. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think it could also partly be sort of like a before the like big end of Victorian rebellion against uh, Christianity and lean into secular things. Um, I do wonder if there's a bit of a, an anti-pagan bent to it, considering mm. that Christmas is, of all the holidays, uh, pretty famously renowned as one that uh, just uh, really robbed a lot of traditions from, yeah. <laughs> from the pagans, right? Uh, the Christmas tree, the Yule log, um, things like that. So. I certainly do think that there is uh, a sort of a pagan ghost haunting regular Christmas and maybe uh, because of the the long history of of folklore being rooted in the Celts and you know the Welsh and the North in general uh, maybe that is a bit more of a of a thing in Britain. Yeah, so the English stole the Christmas tree and the Yule log and they came but they were haunted. I kind of like that. Now, what about A Christmas Carol, the, the the fairly famous Dickens novel? Is that a kind of major milestone in kind of instantiating this or establishing it as I mean, it seems to be kind of as a kind of core part of English literature broadly. Oh, yes, yeah. Um so Dickens isn't the first uh, person hmm. to publish a Christmas-related ghost story, um, but he is one of the first to really popularize it. Um, Christmas Carol was so popular the year that it came out in 1843, I believe, uh, that it was published on December 19th and it sold out on Christmas Eve. Like wow. Christmas Eve, there were no more stories to uh, to purchase. Um, and so he sort of kickstarts things. People really love A Christmas Carol, even back then. And the popularity, of course, continues to today. You know, Muppet Christmas Carol is a classic of Christmas movies in general. Um, But he also inspired a lot of other authors. So you have, you know, folks like Elizabeth Gaskell, you have even um, uh, the Sherlock author, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, authoring Christmas ghost stories. And it really continues uh, all the way through the 1800s uh, into the 1900s when you get M.R. James, who is sort of the next big Mm. 
ghost stories for Christmas author. Um, he's publishing from the early 1900s to the 1920s. And his work is, I would argue, in Britain, uh, actually, maybe a teeny bit more popular, maybe, sure, than, yeah. uh, than Dickens' Christmas Carol, uh, just because he writes so many different short stories that are about you know, ghosts that are read at Christmas. He himself has the tradition. He's working um, at King's College, Cambridge as a medievalist. And every Christmas, he has a new little ghost story that he makes his tutors and the fellow dons sort of sit down around the fire and he'll tell them this story uh, over Christmas. So he has his own little ghost stories for Christmas tradition. Um, but his work becomes super popular. And that's sort of how we go from uh, stories being mostly in print or being mostly uh, told around the fireside to being on the radio, on the television, etc. So is it M.R. James's stories that enter British radio? So, I mean, that would have been overlapping into the 20s. So is that is are those the stories that, that start circulating on, in British popular culture initially through radio? Yes. So the, the first radio story was uh, was A Christmas Carol. It was a version of The Christmas Carol. Oh. Um early, early on. Um, but after that, M.R. James does take over pretty, pretty seriously. Um, just 20 years of radio dominance of M.R. James stories being recorded and played around Christmas. Um, really, it wasn't until the 50s when television became much more widespread and popular that uh, the thing shifted more to TV. But even uh, recently, there have been some M.R. James adaptations on British radio. Now, were there, this is, I don't know, but I know in America, at least starting in the 30s, that there were, you know, fairly popular horror anthology uh, series like The Witch's Tale or The Hermit's Cavern uh, and so these sorts of things. W was that part or were these British ghost stories mainly for Christmas or were there like anthology stories kind of regularly broadcast on BBC Radio? That's a good question that's slightly outside of my, <laughs> of my knowledge. <laughs> That's an annoying question, so we'll strike that from the record. So let's talk about TV, though, and here we're really getting into the heart of your work, uh, which is thinking about uh, the broadcast of these TV movies or these ghost stories for uh, TV. When does that get started? How does that get p taken up by BBC and other broadcasters? Yeah, yeah. Well, so um, the most well-known ghost stories for Christmas on television are the M.R. James movies that are on the BBC uh, that start in the 1970s. But um, when ITV first launches um, in the uh, also in the 1970s, they also have a bunch of ghost stories for Christmas and Channel 4 when they launch in the 1980s, they also start with ghost stories for Christmas. So it's not just BBC, it's sort of across hmm. most of the main channels, um, but it really all starts on the BBC with Whistle and I'll Come to You, which is uh, the 1968 Jonathan Miller TV movie uh, adaptation of M.R. James's Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, 1904 mm -hmm. story. I think that they, it's good that they got rid of My Lad. I don't <laughs> think that was, was a little clunky, you know, as a, a title. Yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, so Whistle and I'll Come for You is this sort of spooky story about an archeologist who goes on holiday, finds an old whistle, blows it, it gets haunted. Uh, it's pretty It's pretty basic. Um, today watching it, it's a little bit more of um, like a slow burn for the art horror crowd, but back in the 1960s, it was considered very spooky. Um, 
And I think M.R. James's stories also lend themselves very well to um, to visual adaptation on television because they follow a, a very particular structure where you start out in a sort of really wonderful, friendly atmosphere where, uh, you know, everyone seems well-fed and happy. Uh, you sort of move to a different place in the narrative. Something spooky is introduced. Someone makes a bad decision and then someone dies. Uh, it's either going to be the protagonist or it'll be someone else. Usually whoever is dying is being punished. So there's that like strong, clear, moral uh, impetus to the story. But usually the ghost, even though they're supposed to be a quite scary ghost, uh, compared to things like, I don't know, exploitation film or Jalo, they're pretty atmospheric. They're pretty uh, fog machine and uh, blowing <laughs> curtains sort of uh, spooky atmosphere. So, um, so Whistle and I'll Come to You really leans into that quite a bit. Uh, there's a lot that happens with the audio in that film, uh, sort of whistling of wind through sand dunes and through uh, open windows and curtains. Um, very, very um, show not tell, but also very don't really show either. Uh, so it's, um, it was, uh, quite spooky that actually gets broadcast in May, uh, of, uh, 1968. And, uh, they rebroadcast it in Christmas because they think, oh, this did okay in May. We think it's going to do even better as a ghost story for Christmas. And once they broadcast it there, they sort of kick off just a, a series every year, bringing out a new movie uh, for Christmas, which, um, it sort of dies off at the end of the 70s. They bring it back in the 1980s with BBC's classic ghost stories and BBC's spine chillers. <laughs> uh, and then it goes into a lull in the 90s as, as most British horror production does, um, even beyond the ghost story for Christmas. Uh, but it comes back pretty pretty robustly in the 2000s, um, starting out with um, BBC's Ghost Stories for Christmas with Christopher Lee. So they're really tapping into that British horror heritage with Christopher Lee. Um, and then since 2013, Mark Gaddis has sort of taken over making a Christmas story with ghosts every couple of years. That's an amazing longevity of a tradition, obviously, with its ups or downs. Are there some really interesting examples of those movies or are there any of those ghost stories that maybe uh, American audiences would, would know or be familiar with? That's the funny thing about this. Um, it, when I originally came across British ghost stories for Christmas uh, and started talking, you know, with uh, friends from the UK, other researchers looking at UK horror, um, it wasn't really something that people talked about outside of the UK, but it was very well known within the UK. And so the fact that I knew about it at all was sort of uh, something that would make people be like, oh, oh, you really do study British cinema. You, <laughs> you really do know about our culture. Um, so, so they're not super well known outside of the UK, but I can say that uh, having rewatched all of the all of the 70s films that they kind of first started with the 60s and 70s films um i can definitely definitely recommend the signalman which is actually based on a dickens story it's very suspenseful um the production values are are pretty akin to what you would expect from a tv movie but it it's very well done it's very suspenseful well worth seeking out. Um, and more recently, um, the most recent Christmas story 
uh, ghost film that Mark Gaddis did is called The Mezzotint, and it came out in 2021. Um, Rory Kinnear is in it, who just starred in um, Men. Uh, All the the roles in Men, (laughs) except two. Um, And that is uh, also quite quite good, quite spooky and available on, I think the BritBox streaming service. Um, some of the, some of the ghost stories for Christmas are a little bit difficult to find if you're outside of the UK, but BritBox does have a few of them. Now, are there any of those that you watched, particularly in that period of the sixties or seventies that were, I don't know, can we say so bad they were good or just so bad they were bad? Any, any that really stand out as being like, Oh my swing and a miss. 100% yes. Um, when I watched The Ice House, which was the last um, 1970s era BBC ghost story for Christmas, um, you could immediately tell when watching it why it was the last one. <laughs> um, it's directed by John Bowen. Uh, it's very... Um, it's very 1970s. It's sort of there are flower children who come into the story at one point and everybody is sort of long-haired and lackadaisical there's problems at a health spa and they begin to suspect that um a strange flower that's growing nearby might um have some sort of uh bad effects on the people who are near it um it's uh so it's sort of a drug metaphor it's really a very bad film uh but it was amusing to watch uh, sort of for the nostalgia for the 70s quality that you get from it um and if you like to watch older films in a camp way uh it's definitely open for that now i desperately want to see that so uh lindsay you talked earlier about sort of the movement of the bbc or the british ghost television movie kind of moving along with the broader trends in british horror so are there ways in which the tv ghost movies have influenced broader British filmmaking? I mean, do you see some any direct connections or indirect connections of those kind of mutually informing each other? Well, that's a really good question. So in general, I think that a lot of what British filmmakers are trying to do is to position themselves specifically as filmmakers, as people who can appeal to an international audience. And so when they have things in their films to appeal basically only to people who live in Britain, sort of very um, uh, domestic tidbits in their films, those are not the parts that they play up when they when they try to get international releases. And so I think that's in part because uh, British filmmakers, there's a much more fluid relationship between British TV and British film. Um, British filmmaking is funded um, at much lower levels than Uh, American film, even American indie film is usually better funded than your average British horror film. Uh, And so I think in some ways um, they're trying to disguise those linkages. And so they're a little bit difficult to find. You really have to kind of hunt for them if you're not from the UK. Um, If you're from the UK, I think it's pretty easy to pick up on them. Um, It makes me think about Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead, which is not a ghost story. No. <laughs> so sorry for that. Um, but if you watch that as an American, you might think, oh, wow, this is so connected to George Romero and the history of zombies and horror. And I can see all of the little scenes that are homages to different things from Romero's films. But if you watch it uh, having sort of being equipped with a lot of British cultural knowledge, um, you notice connections to 
the sort of um, two-man comedy teams that were really popular in the 1970s that Edgar Wright grew up on. And you notice uh, different scenes that are homages to, oh gosh, I've forgotten their name, Monty Python. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. How could I forget Martin Monty Python? Monty Python, and yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I think that um, there's sort of a, there definitely is an influence, but it's, it's definitely harder to see. So one of the reasons that I found out about um, and sort of dove into the Ghost Stories for Christmas tradition was because of the 2012 Hammer film, The Woman in Black, which is a film based on a novel that turned into a stage play that turned into a radio play that turned into film adaptations uh, that is often thought of as a uh, a Christmas ghost story, is often sort of used as a Christmas ghost story. Um, uh, but I don't think anybody watching that with me in theaters in 2012 in Syracuse, New York, uh, <laughs> really, really had any idea that uh, it was leaning pretty hard into some ghost story tropes uh, from from Britain. Uh, I actually didn't even figure it out until a couple years after I had originally seen the film when I started doing uh, my research. So, so yeah, I think if you're going looking for the influence, you can probably track it, but it's it's not readily available and present. Right. So we're probably seeing it, but not aware that we're seeing it. Now, The Woman in Black was, was quite a popular film uh, yes. and kind of re- helped to relaunch uh, Daniel Radcliffe outside of the uh, bespeckled uh, boy wizard role. Um, are we still seeing, in terms of British horror, is, is there still that kind of influence of that gothic atmospheric ghost story, or has British horror gone different directions? This is another good question. Um, I think most of the British horror that I have seen in the past, oh my gosh, 10 years since that movie came out, Mm. wild. Um, The British horror that I've seen in the last 10 years um, is interestingly following other trends that are sort of happening, sort of leaning into art horror or leaning Mm. into exploitation. So there are a lot of low budget British horror films that have come out that are very much not about that, you know, wind in the curtains, spooky fog machine sort of atmosphere of the ghost story for Christmas, but are instead more about um, body horror and scary things in the tube. So (laughs) um, I think that there's definitely a gothic influence on the films that are trying to position themselves as art horror though, um, which the woman in black actually did. Uh, I think I would probably argue uh, that The Woman in Black was the film that started the whole art horror trend, um, at least in the discourse, since there's been art horror forever. Um, But when they were originally marketing the film, um, the executives at Hammer were very big on saying, oh, this is an enlightened horror film. Mm. This isn't like the other, you know, torture porn horror films that are going on at the same time. This is, this is wholesome. This is Daniel Radcliffe. This is Harry Potter and the spooky ghost lady, right? So, yeah. (laughs) So if I want to know who to blame for elevated horror, it is, in the end, Harry Potter. Now, we've been talking about horror films, uh, which, again, some people may say that seems strange for Christmas. Clearly, there's a long tradition of horror uh, ghost stories in Britain, and and thank you for introducing that to our audiences. But it did occur to me as we were kind of preparing for the show that there is actually almost a subgenre of horror, not just in the U.K., uh, that are Christmas horror films. So um, Gremlins is essentially kind of a Christmas horror film. Um, there's 
some exploitation films like Silent Night, Deadly Night, uh, Krampus. Uh, so I'm wondering about the broader, if you have any sense of the broader relationship uh, between Christmas and horror in kind of mainstream film globally. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think on the one hand, horror loves a gimmick, right? <laughs> so you have the 3D films that have come through in various cycles. You have um, the sort of uh, true to life films that come out every, you know, in a cyclical fashion. Um, you have the the trend of films uh, sort of marketing themselves as, oh, we had to have paramedics stationed at the theaters because people were passing out or throwing up because of how horrifying the spectacle was of the film. So, so I think that Christmas horror films are another really great gimmick, right? Because uh, what do people, some people like to do on Christmas and around Christmas, go to the theater, right? And if you are going to the theater, why not see a Christmas movie? Mm. And if you don't want to see Lifetime's and Hallmark's newest Christmas movies, maybe you want to see something a little darker and you want a Christmas horror film. Yeah, no, I think that you are absolutely right. Horror loves a gimmick because we are. Uh, it is a genre that is jumping on every trend you can imagine anytime they get a chance. But I do wonder as well. I wonder if there's maybe also something about at least the idea that horror at Christmas is a little transgressive. I mean, we do still, especially in America, where we don't have the tradition of the ghost story. We tend to cover it in sugar and schmaltz. I mean, it is the ro- the wonderful romance films that are on Lifetime or Hallmark, or it is, you know, the stop-action animation films, or it is the Christmas classics like It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, as Americans, we tend to just kind of wrap it in a shiny bow and put it under the, the tree. And to think that there is something really horrible inside that, maybe that appeals to us in some weird way. I do really agree with that uh, as a former goth kid who very happily went around telling people that Gremlins, Joe Dante's Gremlins, as you mentioned before, was my favorite Christmas film uh, for a long time. Uh, I do think there is something sort of particularly pleasing and transgressive about holiday horror. Um, But I do also think that there's something about the season of Christmas, Mm. not Christmas itself as a holiday, um, that's trying to almost uh, like you said, sort of sugar over and paper over the fact that we are in the depths of winter (laughs) and death is all around us, right? Like all the vegetation is dead. Uh, Everything is very dark and the wind is very spooky. Uh, And so I think, I think it's a time when people are ripe to be spooked, right? No, it, it definitely picks that up. And I have to you know, I have to ask if, if I'm right. I feel like one of the best examples of that death and snow and decay and Christmas for me is A Nightmare Before Christmas, the, the Tim Burton produced yes. uh, film. Is that is that is that maybe the best example of horror and Christmas that American culture has to offer? I think it may well be the best example of horror and Christmas Uh that our culture has offered so far in the US. Um, Although I am a pretty big fan of Krampus, uh, although that is relying on sort of um, an older uh, European folktale, there is something very American about A Nightmare Before Christmas, right? It's um, really sort of taking all of the commercialized, commoditized Mm. holidays and putting them into one 
you know, fantasy world uh, where one man is just trying to make holidays really great, right? Um, so I think I think there is something something to that. Uh, although I would be remiss while we're talking about. Uh, Christmas horror films, if I didn't mention The Lodge, um, mm. which is from uh, Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala, which is a more recent film and a very dark film, yep. um, but set on Christmas. Is it a Christmas film? I don't know, uh, but it is really terrifying. So if you're if you're looking for something that isn't sort of a, a light, fluffy gremlins or a, you know, um, really beautiful celebratory nightmare before Christmas. I do think the lodge is about as terrifying as you can get on Christmas. I love it. Just what we need. Another reason to put a, another log on the fire because we are chilled to the bone by the terrifying <laughs> film we're watching. Uh, Lindsay, now it is time to unwrap uh, Pop Life's most popular present, uh, The Fast Five. As you know, uh, this is the segment of the show where I'll ask you five somewhat irreverent questions, all loosely around the Christmas theme, uh, and ask you to follow your heart and choose one of those, beginning with question number one. Lindsay, which popular British show should have had a Christmas ghost story special? Monty Python's Flying Circus or Benny Hill? Ooh, I would have loved to see a Monty Python Christmas special that truly unhinged. Like, I can't even imagine what that would have been like, but it would have been, I'm quite sure, amazing. I feel like a Life of Brian Christmas would have been exactly what we all <laughs> needed to see. Uh, question number two for you, Lindsay. <laughs> so Dickens introduced the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. Which of these is their more annoying cousin? The ghost of underwhelming Christmas gifts you spent a lot of money on or the ghost of the sink filled with dirty dishes on Boxing Day morning? Ooh. Ooh, oof. As someone originally from Canada, I have to take the Boxing Day reference. Um, also, there is nothing more haunting than a sink full of dishes. <laughs> it, is, it is that day after Christmas. Oh, my. And I realized there's no uh, Santa's little helper to help clean all these dishes. Question number three <laughs> for you, Lindsay. Which British culinary delight is the more horrifying, blood pudding or haggis? Ooh, having had both, I have to say... Haggis is delicious, and I don't know why anyone would have a problem with it. So we're going to go with blood pudding. Blood pudding. Terrifying. <laughs> we will now never share a meal again together again, Lindsay, having heard that. <laughs> Question number four for you. In the run-up to the holidays, would you be more excited to go searching for a Christmas tree with Jason Voorhees or gift wrapping with Freddy Krueger? Ooh, all of those scissor fingers, so useful. So useful in Christmas wrapping. I, ha I have to go with, uh, definitely with Freddie. <laughs> I feel like Freddie would make it a lot quicker and he have lots of great one-liners. So finally for you, Lindsay, question number five. Which holiday should Americans start celebrating with ghost stories? Should it be Thanksgiving with the ghost of our previously healthy cholesterol level or President's Day and the ghost of our formerly functioning democracy? That's a great question. I think I think we have to leave President's Day to the furniture stores and mattress stores. <laughs> so I'm going to say Thanksgiving. I feel like Thanksgiving doesn't have enough lore around it. We need we need some good 
terrifying turkey Thanksgiving lore. And there's got to be enough ghosts of turkeys wobbling around somewhere to uh, to put the fright in us. Uh, Lindsay, you've been a wonderful guest. Thank you for sh- shedding light on these interesting traditions and the relationship between ghosts and horror and Christmas. Now, as always, we love to know from our guests not only about their expertise, but tell us about what you're loving in pop culture. What is a big part of your pop life these days? Yeah. Well, so recently I have uh, just finished watching a great UK show called Bad Sisters that's on Apple TV. Um, Really amazing, funny, very dark murder mystery. Um, Bad Sisters, really excellent. But also Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities is really good so far. I'm really loving it. It's on Netflix. Definitely can recommend that. Outstanding. These are wonderful specials to put under our Christmas tree. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us. And to our listeners, thanks for putting Pop Life under your tree this holiday season. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, feel free to reach out to us on social media. We are at Pop Life, W-A-E-R, on both Twitter and Instagram. I'm Kendall Phillips reminding you to join me next week for part three of our Christmas in the Movie special series. I will see you all then. Thanks for listening to Pop Life, a production of WAER, Syracuse Public Media. You can find archived episodes at WAER.org. And don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen for automatic delivery of new episodes.